Hey, Richard, this one sounds a little bit different again. I wonder why that is. Uh, I think it's because we're back together, baby. <laughs> <laughs> the boys are back in town. The boys are back in town. Here they come. <laughs> by boys, I mean one boy. <laughs> Just the other boys still haven't made it yet. Yeah, no, they're... they're... We'll get them next time. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh... Oh, something sounding weird. I think oh. it's because there's chanting in the, the TV. Yes, if anybody, if there's any concern, we are recording this in, in my house and my other family members still want to watch TV. Which is fine. No one That's, listens to this. We're about, we're about empowering people watching movies. Start the discussion. <laughs> Hashtag start the discussion. Hashtag 13 reasons why. <laughs> I'm so glad that show's basically dead. I'm I know, it's, it's such a disgusting show, honestly. Yeah. And again, everybody was like, oh, see, what was fantastic. It was talking about mental health. And you're like, cool, great. And then after that, they're like, let's extend things to beyond the barrier when we weren't prepared to talk about these other themes and things like that. And people are just like... Dude, their, their whole let's talk about mental health thing is also complete bullshit. Like, I, I actually couldn't get through the first episode just because I was like this really I was like so pissed off at the show because I was just like all this entire thing is just like hey if you ever feel like nobody's paying attention to you kill yourself <laughs> and then people pay attention to you and it's like no <laughs> that's not that's not the point <laughs> yeah um why are you here why am I here well we're Recording a podcast, dude. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, no, we've uh, just kind of in the area figured that we'd talk about stuff. It's so much better to do it in person than it is over the mm-hmm. the Facebook calls that we do or Zoom calls and stuff. So I do enjoy this a lot more. Oh, it's a lot nicer. Yeah. You get to actually like, hang out. You get to make me some coffee. Yeah, we're to... making you some. <laughs> you get to hear about all the fun stuff that's going on throughout the week. Like, you're car <laughs> <laughs> the car problem's getting fixed but apparently i got house problems now. yeah yeah <laughs> yeah if your gut says you shouldn't do something then don't do it <laughs> or if you meet somebody that's fairly sketchy and they come off very sketchy stay away from them <laughs> we've learned this many times so your parents always say don't talk to strangers it's probably a good philosophy don't stop don't talk to strangers um yeah, this is this is also probably gonna be like the last like podcast like this because you're going away for a bit. Mm-hmm. It's, probably still can't talk about that, but no, to an extent. Yeah, I don't know. I feel I've, I've, you're I've going told, to work. I'm going to work. Yeah, I'm going to work, boys. <laughs> <laughs> Packing up the suitcase. We're going to work. So, Could do you worse. do you got any news of the the filmmakery? Yes. No, not of the filmmakery, just of the, the films. The, what is your movies. your film movie news? Um, Give me your movie news and your movie views. Bestowing your knowledge, I've got uh, NBC Universal has officially unveiled Peacock, the new streaming service. Super exciting. Um, their streaming platform is a little bit different. Um, I don't know if it's actually available in Canada at the moment. I know it is for certain in the United States of America, but like Netflix and Hulu and other subscription based services, what you do is you pay like a monthly plan and you can have so many screens running at once. NBC Universal changed that a little bit by saying you can pay for a cheaper plan and you'll have ads run on your shows. 
So you can binge watch The Office, but between each episode or during the middle of an episode, you might see a, an ad for one of their own shows, or you might see like a, a product placement in the middle of it. Uh, and because of that, they've been able to uh, lower the cost of what the streaming service is going to cost. I believe it's like 5 or $6 in the U.S. And then you can pay for a premium plan where it's a reduced amount of uh, commercials or uh, zero commercials, I think. It's like a very limited plan. Um, more news to come on it because it only got released just the other day. But if you want to binge watch The Office, that's where it ended up going. Actually, they have a lot of sitcoms. They, they have like Parks and Recs, uh, The Office. Well, because those were all NBC television shows. Yeah, I think they also have 30 Rock. Yeah, those were all NBC shows. Yeah. Is that just in the States, or is that also going to happen in Canada, where I, this I, platform is going to take... Because I think The Office is still on Canadian Netflix? Yeah, I don't, I'm don't. i not 100% certain, because there really wasn't any news in Canadian... like On all the Canadian news outlets, or the ones that I usually follow, most people really weren't advertising Peacock. It was kind of like a... It just happened, and it was forthcoming, but nobody really spoke about it. They haven't really talked about the library either. I guess there's a few originals that people are excited for, but the big tent pole for them is the fact that they had three or four dynamite 10-season sitcoms between the early 2000s to the 2010s that all took the ratings home, and they basically all had the same executive producers, and they're the shows you guys watched on Netflix for the last five years, and now they're all on Peacock. So um, if you're looking for your home to binge-watch your 10-season TV shows that you've been in love with for 20 years then go to Peacock because you might enjoy it. And you probably get it for just, a, honestly, a few bucks a month, which is still cheaper than your cable subscription used to be. Well, I'm looking up some stuff here. Oh, here we go. Here we, we have go. some pretty interesting news that you'll uh-huh. like. So, Yongsang Ho's Peninsula came Yo! out. Finally. Train is, to Busan 2! <laughs> yeah, the sequel to Train to Busan. Yes! And the box office numbers are coming in. Uh, it's, it's just in South Korea, correct? It is in... South Korea, Taiwan, Singapore, Malaysia, and Vietnam. Okay, so very and local. its opening weekend was thirteen point two million. Like you, like the equivalent U.S. dollars. That's really good. That's really good. That's really. Good. And of that, seven hundred fifty thousand of that was from forty-five IMAX screens. That's like that's a, that's like U.S. LA numbers. Yeah, yeah. And so they think that the total box office in those markets alone is going to be $20 million at the end of this movie with $1 million coming from IMAX alone. That's nuts. Yeah. That's really exciting. My goodness. Dude, I've, I've been waiting for that movie for so long. Um, they When they first announced it or a lot of the press got into it, they said they were calling it the Mad Max of zombie movies. And it the trailer's nuts. It's like cage fights and stuff with zombies in them and like a world that's like ravaged. It's it's going to be very comparable to what 28 Days Later and 28 Weeks Later were like. Mm-hmm. Like 28 Days Later was very, uh, it was grand, but it was also like very isolated and they introduced a whole bunch of new zombie tropes that people weren't used to. And Train to Busan did that as well with their, uh, I mean, you figured out a third into the movie, but some of the zombies they can't see or they they don't do anything in the dark. They're mostly like hearing based. So that's like part part of the plot is that they to to escape them they have to like find ways to like maneuver around them because they're basically unstoppable. And it's like yo, this is so cool. Also, just a dope movie, straight up. It is a dope movie. 
really fun, and I think it's on Canadian Netflix still. That's where I saw it. So. Yes. Speaking about Netflix. Yeah. Peninsula will not be on Netflix. No, you've crushed my dreams. <laughs> well, one thing that I'm interested about seeing with this is how foreign markets that aren't China are mm-hmm. responding to Korean cinema and also cinema at all, at all at this point in time. Yeah. So the fact that it's $20 million in like four countries that aren't known, at least to us in the Western world, as being big spenders on movies. No, not at all. That's money that like a, an indie film, a Hollywood indie film would expect to get. Mm-hmm. Well, like an Oscar worthy movie or something like that. In, right? Indie tier, but like you're talking like Fox Searchlight level indie, yeah. A24, which is still like very big compared to like indie indie or, or micro budget, right? Yeah, and also seeing that IMAX might start getting bigger and bigger in South, Southeast Asia countries, which is something interesting to see. But as well, oh, here we go, where it's going to be releasing next. Ooh. So they're kind of rolling it out as movie theaters are opening up in other parts of the world of course so next it's going to be thailand nice. denmark norway and sweden okay and cambodia cambodia right so maybe seeing how these places deal with it as well it will be coming to north american theaters for august 7th yes in the and, bubble <laughs> yep and it's going to be exclusively streaming on Shudder once it's done in theaters. Shudder's coming back. Everything relates. We're coming, Blood machines. We're coming back to Shudder. Oh, that's so dope. They're not. Yeah. They're not doing a video on demand release. They haven't. They haven't announced that at all. So it was part of uh, the Cannes Film Festival this year. Okay. And they're going for actual theaters. Hey, if they're getting twenty million dollars just from a few Southeast Asian countries, once they hit. Mainland Europe, um, possibly once they open up in Japan, once they open up in the U.S., like, they'll make their money. Yeah. I think unless you have, like, an extensive marketing plan in Canada specifically, it's very hard to market movies like that, even if they're, like, tentpole action movies because they're they're subtitled. Or and it, I, I think they could do a similar thing to what uh, Parasite? Parasite did. Yeah. Parasite grew. But it also had the Oscar buzz, that's why. Well, that's... No, it grew... But it grew through word of mouth. Yes. It hit cans, and then it grew from there, hitting other festivals and slow releases and stuff like that, till people were like, oh, I've heard about this movie Parasite. I'll go see it. Like, people didn't even think about it as being a foreign film mm-hmm. here in Canada. They kind of just went, oh, it's a movie that people are telling me that's good. And you could maybe see that happening with, uh, with Peninsula. Just as it slowly gets released in other parts of the world, as the box office numbers go up, as the, as it's one of the few things in the theaters, yeah, you can maybe see and like, oh, I've been trapped inside all day, all the time. I want to go, go do something. Let's go see a stupid zombie movie. But the thing is, I feel like, or possibly even, um, as you've been saying a whole lot, drive-ins. Yes, zombie movies work super well for drive-ins. Yeah, they do. They that would be like a good market. I know uh, in Ontario specifically, Cineplex announced that they will, because a lot of our stuff is going into stage three. Uh, for anybody that doesn't know, because I think we do have some listeners that are outside of Canada. We're uh, opening up in phases. Yeah, yeah. And phase four basically means we're pretty close to back to normal. Phase three being uh, well, where, where we're just in, or most of Ontario is in. Yeah, it's but like, we're just, I think we're like three days into phase three. Yeah, exactly. And... So, 
um, other parts of the country have. Op- uh, I know Cineplexes open up in Alberta and yeah. they're open in the Maritimes. Yeah. But I don't think they've opened up in other parts of the country yeah. yet. So the the big thing is like I. Uh, the other day went in and went to a, a little. Uh, like a burger joint and we actually got to sit down inside the restaurant for the first time in months which was really cool because they asked me how my food was and it was like best in months and i don't think she laughed <laughs> and it was like oh too soon <laughs> it's still it's still limited like it's 50 percent capacity right yeah no we, we we had a table of like six people and there was no tables near us at all it was like center of the floor because they had booth seating right mm-hmm. so but they still had the patio open and things like that so it was quite nice um and it was a sports bar so all the TVs were on, and I could look over, and I was like, I'm watching Major League Baseball highlights that don't happen. <laughs> but um, moral of the story is, Phase 3, Cineplex has opted out to not doing or not opening right now. They might in, in the next few weeks, but they've been given the clearance from the government to do so at the 50% occupancy, six feet apart, distancing, and things like that. Other, other movie theater chains are opening yeah. in Ontario. Or they're adapting. Or they're figuring it out. So, like, independent ones I know are opening and trying mm-hmm. to open up. I know that the independent one here is going to try to open up really There wasn't a whole lot of lead-in time going, hey, we're going into phase three. No, there really wasn't. I think there was, like, three days. It was, like, I think it was, like, on the Tuesday. We're, like, hey, by Friday, phase three. And, like, all the restaurants were kind of, like, okay, well, cool. we've had patios this whole time, so we're just going to adapt that for the 50% capacity inside. Yeah. That's fine. But all the places that have been completely closed since then are, like, Wait, what? Uh, uh, <laughs> culture shock? <laughs> Let me call up some people. I need to hire everybody back. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, box office-wise, though, uh, and we've been touching on it for the last couple of weeks, there's a big growing concern about Tenant because as we made uh, headway beforehand, uh, we said in our first couple of weeks when we were talking about it that it, it was going to be like a, a powerhouse. Like if, if everything was going to open back up and things were going to be optimal even 50% occupancy or more in the U.S. theaters, you could see this film being dynamite. Now knowing that a lot of theaters are in financial trouble and also seeing that nothing in the U.S. has really opened up or they're going back into lockdown in specific states, mm-hmm. and even the big Canadian cities are still keeping their theaters closed, they've still kind of pushed things off a little bit. So they've estimated that the film needs to gross at least close to $800 million worldwide to break even. Because it is a larger-than-life, huge, yeah. ten-pole action film that's almost three hours long, like Inception. Shouldn't be too difficult, again, under normal circumstances. Well, here's another hurdle that they have to jump over. In China, they have a strict rule in their theaters where the movie can't be over two and a half hours long. Wait, so, what? Yeah. So they've enforced, what? they've enforced, so the second largest market in the world for watching movies, sometimes first, depending on which movie is being played there, they won't allow Tenant to show because it's too long for the audience to be sitting there. And that brings to the question of, like, are they going to recut it specifically for one market just to, like, capitalize on something? And also, would Christopher Nolan compromise his film after working on it for five or six years to do something like this? If it means, like, it, it's it's a very big question, right? Maybe well, you just cut out the end much, credits and the, and the head credits. <laughs> how much is the the, the the Chinese specific market to Chris Nolan? I don't know. Uh, action movies, North American <clears throat> or, like, American Hollywood action movies tend to do very well in China. They've learned Michael Bay is a big pull in China. Michael Bay is, but is Chris Nolan? I don't know. I, I don't think, like... 
Like, how well did Inception do? How well did Interstellar do there? Yeah, I'd have to do some, like, number plugging on it. But you're you're probably talking, like, the tens of millions of dollars. And that's when they kind of went, well, if you do really well in China, let's say you got optimal movie-going experience, you're the only new movie in China, and you could go to every theater for whatever reason. Let's say you pull maybe $100 million in China, which is huge. Yeah. But you're that's, like, again, the expectation for, like, uh, a Transformers movie. So you get $100 million from China. Well, you only have $700 million to go. Do you put it on Warner Brothers streaming service, increase the monthly plan, or do a limited action um, thing where you can get early access to the film to watch it on your iPhone or your computer at home, but it's like a DVD rental or a premium video on demand sort of thing? That's one of their ideas. Um I know it's crazy. It's raining. I think. Yeah, I think. Uh, there's a storm coming, Harry. There's a storm coming. <laughs> but um, so there's there's a whole bunch of speculation that like if you do it video on demand, we've seen Trolls World Tour kind of break even because it cuts your marketing costs in half. Well, they've already rolled out trailers, but they haven't put the banners out because they were still so far in advance. So if you're talking about an eight hundred million dollar break even, your break even goes down to like six hundred or seven hundred, five or six hundred million dollars because. You don't have to worry about your marketing costs, and you get a much deeper pocket on selling it to somebody on their laptop than you do from a theater. So it's it's yeah, I don't I don't know. It'll be interesting because also, is Chris Nolan gonna want to go for that? Not at all. He hates it. Chris Nolan is uh, he's he was one early like in February March. He basically was the Uncle Sam of the film industry and went like. I need to make my movie. I need to. I need to put it out in the theaters. It needs to be watched the way it was intended to. I.e., he was like, I've got 65 mil or 70 mil IMAX projection. I need that being shown on a big screen. If you watch it on your on on your iPhone, it's kind of kind of an insult. But we'll we'll see what happens. Actually, that kind of reminds, kind of reminds me. There's a, a a thing going around of. Uh, Oh, I think it was something said in the podcast or in a tw- or in an interview or something like uh, Denis Villeneuve had Lawrence of Arabia on his phone. <laughs> oh yes, yes. And he went to, and he was trying. He was, I think, he was on set with uh, Deacons. I think they were shooting Sicario or Blade Runner. Yeah, I think. Um, yeah, I think. Yeah, it was, and I think they were pulling up a scene from Prisoners or something like that, wasn't he? No, 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 no. They were pulling up. A, he, he was pulling up a scene from Lawrence Arabia on his phone oh, to right. show Deacons. <laughs> And he's like, what and Deacons was just like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> <laughs> Who does this? This is sacrilege. He's like, and, and Deacons was like, and and Denny Villeneuve was like, well, it's great to see it there, but I have it on my phone. <laughs> and he was boom. like, dude, it's on my phone. <laughs> and Deacons was like, disgusting. This <laughs> is such a disgrace. You you you've ruined you've ruined cinematic history. <laughs> this is it. So. All right. Uh, so if we're gonna go into some film maker e news, hit me with it. Hit me with it. I've got, I've got, I've got a few things. Small HD has released the Small HD Focus Pro five inch rugged touchscreen monitors. Wow. Yeah, they're just another edition of Small HD's really good touchscreen monitors. Uh, it's three hundred and fifty nit. It's ten eighty. Well, nineteen twenty by ten eighty. It's five inch. Uh, it's got a two-pin power port so, or, or a Sony L-mount. Uh, it's got a 3.5-millimeter audio jack. Uh, and apparently it's got some optional camera controls for reds if you hook it up through the SDI. But no, it doesn't 
It's not an external recorder. It's just a field monitor. Just a field monitor. No external recording like some of the other. Uh, small HD tends to only really make uh, monitors, not recorders. The recorders tend to be uh, with uh, Atomos and they're like shinobis and ninjas and whatever. Yeah, but it, I mean, having that flexibility on a on a red system is kind of interesting. I mean, yeah, it'll have some some camera controls for it since. Um, well, reds you tend to control through its monitor and its touchscreen, so just kind of being able to replace that tiny red monitor with, like, that's about three inches to a five-inch monitor, full 1080p, with, um, uh, it's got uh, RGB 444 up to 108060, so pretty useful. I just spent $28,000 on a red Monstro. I'm, uh, I'm going to have a three-inch monitor for it. It's going to be fantastic. Oh, hello. The dog has come to see you. Hi, doggo. Hi, Jack. We got big news. Big news. Big, big news. boy news. Big boy news. Which is hilarious because last week we had big boy news with the uh, full official release and announcement of the Canon EOS R5 and R6. This takes that and kind of bitch slaps it. <laughs> <laughs> literally, literally. Literally. Black Magic Design, known for DaVinci Resolve. Known for the black magic pocket cinema camera. Dogs going wild. Known for your dog sneezing everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Has come out with the Ursa Mini Pro 12K. And then we all, the room fell silent and we all started vomiting. <laughs> we all heard our computers, CPUs die together. I can, just, just to let you guys know, uh... My computer's just crashed. Uh, I can feel the fan blowing me 300 yards away. <laughs> it's making noises it shouldn't be right now. Uh, it's not good. <laughs> yeah. It's 80 megapixels. It has a 12,288 by 6,480 12K Super 35 sensor rated for 14 stops of dynamic range. I don't want that. <laughs> it ships with PL or EF mount. I don't want it. <laughs> okay, so apparently what the thing is, is that it is a 12K sensor, but the plan and the point, air quotes, is not to deliver in 12K. It is to do like what the Ari has done and the Red has done and the Canons have done and everybody else has done. It's oversampling the image. The point is that, yes, they have a 12K camera, 12K sensor. It records in 12K. You can do 12K. Mm -hmm. But the plan is that this camera is future-proofing itself for 8K delivery. Oh, okay. Which is interesting. Still a little overkill. I still think it's huge amounts of overkill. Yeah. Because people are barely still adopting 4K. Yeah. Like... And like in in most circumstances, like if you're if you're shooting any vast quantity of footage and you don't have special computers or drives formatted for the occasion or like an editing suite or bay that's ready to take on terabytes of footage, it is a waste of time. So like what they do with the Blackmagic Pocket Cinema Camera, the Blackmagic Pocket Cinema Camera is really meant to be recorded straight onto SSD drives. Mm -hmm. This is also meant to be recorded pretty much straight onto SSD drives. You can do CFast, you can do other, other things. But it's got new color science. That's cool. It's got some higher frame rates. It can shoot 
60 FPS in 12K, 110 at 8K, 220 at 4K. That's cool. Dual CF, uh, C fast card reading up to 900 megabytes per second, which is great. If you're like me and you are a huge data rate bitch, because, ah, dude, you know, like, I've got my 5.6K full frame sensor, but it only does 150 megabytes per second. I'm like, nah, get out of here. I'll have 4K at 400 megabits per second. Put it in a little memory card and it's like filled up in an hour and you're like, how come when I move stuff around or put color to it, it looks like garbage? (laughs) It's because you didn't record anything. You idiot. Yeah, it's going to be available. Uh, it's PL mount included, so that's the base model, but Fair. you can get it uh, with EF or F mount, apparently. Um, it's still still same ergonomics and like layout as like the 4K camera and the 6K camera, right? Or they, they was it a 4.8K or something? I think the original, or the latest model of the Earth is 5.6K. Oh, 5.6K. I yeah. think. But it's like the same sort of It's the exact shell. same body. Yeah. I've used a Blackmagic Ursa uh, 5.6K or 4K, whichever one it is. Um, it's an okay camera. They have easy to navigate menus. No, I hate their menus. Never mind. <laughs> have you used the Ursa? I've I've seen them a couple of times. I, I've, I've always wanted to use one. I've been within like three feet of one. That's like my close. I'm two degrees to the 5.6K Ursa. <laughs> when, I, uh, when, it, when, it, when we did uh, studio stuff for the production house, yeah, our studio and live cameras were Ursas. They're really great for that, and that's one thing where I think that this camera is going to come in handy if you are in a studio environment. So if you're in a VFX studio and you have a camera on like one of those dolly tripods where you can pet up and pet down like a TV studio, yeah, oh, yeah. these cameras are going to be amazing. They're going to be dope. If you're just moving around with them, they are a bit bulky. Uh, they're about similar weight and size. Ah, they're a little bit heavier than, say, like an Alexa Mini. SXT, like a studio. Oh, okay. They're about that size and about that weight. Um, guess who's editing <laughs> yeah i know it's I'm got really good um what are you looking at mr card reader no yeah it's got the black the black magic raw file format it has tons and tons of features if you really want to go look at it go look at it i don't want to go into all of it right now um you get da vinci dude yeah, so DaVinci Resolve, they've been showing some examples of how it's actually not going to destroy your computer. <laughs> As they have this, like, warehouse-sized computer. That's only if you're recording in Blackmagic RAW and you're using DaVinci Resolve. Not everybody still moved over to the DaVinci Resolve workflow. Um, a lot of people still like Avid. A lot of people still like Premiere. Coloring in DaVinci, though. Yeah, coloring in DaVinci, but, like, you need to edit and do your sound because you don't want to transfer 12k files around like it's it's interesting the price point is also extremely interesting okay oh do you not know the price no i I know the other ones came in around was it eight thousand canadian when they would drop or nine thousand canadian so this is nine thousand nine hundred ninety five dollars us okay so that makes sense so just under ten thousand it's ten thousand dollars flat for the body yeah yeah so you're looking at fourteen fifteen thousand canadian dollars for the shell it's not, which it's not for bad. a 12k camera if if what you're concerned about is resolution 
And you're going to leave it on like a tripod or like you said, like a studio setup? Yeah, if you're... Who if, cares? If you're Corridor Digital, this camera's amazing for you. Yeah. Because they do a lot of VFX stuff. And they do... They have a big studio. Shoot a lot of plates. Right? If you shoot a lot of plates, this is amazing. If you can adopt to the Blackmagic workflow and you're all doing your own stuff, this is great. Don't think a lot of high-end DPs are going to be instantly jumping over to this. No, no, I don't, I don't, I, I don't think. I, I don't think a single Hollywood movie is going to shoot on this. No, I don't think I've ever seen a Blackmagic uh, Ursa shoot a Hollywood movie. I've, I've known of the Blackmagic series to shoot a couple high-end music videos. I think Panic at the Disco had a couple shot. Maybe some music videos. I, I, I think the Blackmagic Pocket Cinema camera 6k with the super 35 sensor again also this is a super 35 sensor yeah yeah um super important just to mention the 6k super 35 sensor i think is where you're starting to get into people being interested in using that in documentaries short films music videos that kind of stuff yeah maybe going into really really low indie budget features yeah um because of its form factor because of the color science because of everything that it can do i think that's where you're going to start seeing that but it runs into its own problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really hard to get V-mount batteries onto it easily. Um, it's it's a it's a it's an owner operator kind of camera. Once you get two ACs and you're trying to hook on wireless follow focuses and teradecs and a big monitor and send to a director's monitor, once you start doing all that sort of stuff it's that you start doing on feature films yeah. or larger and short films and music videos, then you're going to be wanting to get into like a C300, C500, a, a, a low-level red or something like that. Um, and yeah, you're not going to have 6K, but still, nobody Who really cares? wants a lot of delivery in 6K yet. Yeah, uh, It's great for when you're oversampling to say 2K or 4K, um, but still, it's just... I think Black Magic is definitely going after that resolution market. Mm-hmm. And it's gonna nail it, and with all, and it does have good color science. I can't knock that. Like I, I prefer a Blackmagic color science over, say, like a, uh, a Sony or Panasonic color science for my own personal taste. But it's not what everybody's looking for every time that they they use a camera. It'll be interesting to see what happens. Yeah. But that's the big big news. You've got a 12K camera and an 8K camera that just came out. And people are still complaining about having to deal and work on 4K footage. So oh, dude. I don't know how widely adopted these cameras are going to be. But do you want to talk about Senna? <laughs> yes. All right. Uh, I watched it, uh, I think, the last... I think the day that we recorded our last episode, I had it pulled up on my computer, so I think I watched it that night. So yeah. it's been a while. Yeah. Um, but you watched it more last, recently. Yeah. You, which is odd. Usually you watch the thing first, and then I watch it. So yeah, just been a little busy, but um, um yeah. I want to hear your views because you had no idea who Ayrton Senna was. Not at all. Or Prost. Or really, what F one? Or Ron Dennis. <laughs> or 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 Williams or McLaren or anything. I'm actually a little bit of an F1 fan, yeah. which is why I knew about this movie to begin with, other than its critical praise. Yeah. So. You give the recap. Okay, I'll give the recap. Um, Senna is a documentary about the life of Ayrton Senna. Yes. Ayrton Senna was a Formula One driver from Brazil. Brasilia. He won three World Drivers Championships. 
Uh, he pretty used, much back to back, right? Uh, Fairly close. Three and four years. Yeah. Um, in the late '80s, early '90s, uh, he had a very big rivalry with a, uh, another driver, uh, Alain Prost, who won four drivers' world championships um, around that time as well. They kind of fought it out for a few years there. He, he, yeah, <laughs> yeah. He drove uh, for McLaren F1 team. So if you've ever heard of McLaren sports cars, like same people. Yeah, uh, and then Williams F1 team, which is one of the most famous and historic F1 teams, started and run by Frank Williams. They're still an F1 team today. McLaren is also still an F1 team today. Yeah, yeah. Uh, McLaren. Actually, we're recording this on the 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 day of the Hungarian Grand Prix. And it kind of is a film that covers his racing career. It's a well-done documentary. It's Okay, so the interesting point. It's done by the same people who did Amy, the Oscar award-winning documentary about Amy uh, Winehouse. Yep. They've also done, uh, recently they did Maradona, which is about the Argentine soccer player Diego Maradona. Mm-hmm. And so they've done this movie, Senna. And it's done purely 100% using found footage at the time that was recorded at the time of all these events. Yes. So it's so much painstaking research and work, finding home videos and news interviews and anything. They do modern uh, audio interviews. Yes. To explain what's going on, give some context and such. But all of the things that you visually see were made at the time. It sounds like they kind of futzed it a little bit, though, didn't they? Kind of to help it blend a little bit more. Oh, the audio interviews? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so that's kind of the background. And it covers his life from uh, when he starts uh, go-kart racing in Europe. Because before you go to Formula One cars, you got to start off with go-karts and all that sort of stuff. I don't know about it anymore, but I'm sure it's a good stepping point. <laughs> no, they still do that. Oh, do they? Okay. Well, it's because um, again, shows how much I know. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff about Formula One racing that they kind of just gloss over because it's not important for the story about Senna as a character, right. as a person. But you, he went over when he was in his teenage years. Yeah. To go do go kart racing, <laughs> and these are not like your go kart at like. Your local these aren't car. yeah these, these aren't are, soapboxes these are these are fast go karts people get hurt if you crash that sort of stuff and um you you start off there because you just need to learn like how to drive a car yeah pretty much um that it, and it helped that Senna's family was I they talk about it a little bit they said he was very well off. So yeah. he, they they were able to get him into a sport like that, but I mean it 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 worked out really well because he his, did pretty well for himself. Well, he did really well for himself, but his impact on on the country was astronomical. So yeah, so it's not just about his impact as a racing driver because he was a great racing driver, but also about his impact in Brazil at the time. He was a huge national figure, um, and he was very inspiring for a lot of people in Brazil because he wasn't afraid about being Brazilian and he was doing something uh, different because Brazil's kind of known, I think if you're going to be a sporting figure, a soccer player is kind of understandable. Brazil, soccer, Pele, Ronaldinho, around the same time you had guys like Romario, Ronaldo, um, who else was around that time? Frick. Uh-huh. Uh, Roberto Carlos, although that was a little bit later, but those kind of soccer players. Yeah. 
Um, but then you have Senna. Senna's going to Europe to do a European thing against European drivers and beating them. He was beating Frenchmen. He was beating Germans. He was beating the English. He was an outsider kind of taking it on. And I think it gave a lot of people a lot of pride, especially in a time when... Uh, it doesn't go a lot into Brazilian history, and I don't know a ton about Brazilian history. We could probably have asked Artur about this. Yeah, just a little bit. Uh, but <laughs> the '90s didn't seem like a good time for them, or late '80s. <laughs> the late '80s and '90s, like there was like a lot of police rule, a lot of oppression, a very very big gulf between the rich and the poor. Yeah, well, um, they were showing like almost like the favelas and stuff like that. Yeah, and... like the favelas, the crime, all that sort of stuff, and and those are all still problems that are prevalent in. In Brazil today yeah but they were extra prevalent then right yeah so what did you think though about the movie again as a movie yeah no the movie was very well done um I it's not that I don't enjoy documentaries I feel like documentaries are just like I I'm so much a, a narrative driven person so whenever somebody gives me a documentary recommendation I'm usually at a loss because I don't know much of them or about them um always take them with an open arm but uh it was great not knowing anything like you you had asked if i wanted to know any of the history and i went in completely blind which i think helped a lot with the experience of getting into the character uh the story was just bar none uh, it was phenomenal i think it was really cool um i've mentioned to you a couple times like some of the camera work that was done and in all the found footage that was found was just so unique um because you're literally looking at like home footage when he was a go-kart racer or like him in his like private home when he was on vacation when he was just starting out or when he's he's got his cockpit footage even just moments before the crash which was unbelievable i was like oh he's oh 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 oh." (laughs) yeah so you should probably preface this uh the senna has a lot of like mystery not mystery but like he's an important figure in f1 because he's also not only was he an amazing driver he's yeah. a, a, an amazing amazing driver who passed away in the cockpit during like a, during a grand prix race actually during a, a race like where there, he there was, was there winning was, there, was, there was also like two people that passed away in that in that span there was one during the qualifying right yeah and there was also then him and there was also other many near fatal crashes that happened and it was like it was almost being foreshadowed he was like i don't want to do this but like and he was uncomfortable with the team at the time i mean they go so much into the history of where he was he was starting off because i'm correct me if, if i'm wrong again he started with lotus I think it said he started with Lotus, or he was on a different team. Then he got signed to Lotus. Lotus was one of his first professional contracts. Then he went up to uh, McLaren, mm-hmm. and McLaren was where he won all of his championships. And mm-hmm. by the time he and Prost were kind of dueling it out, or Prost was just finishing things off, uh, I think Prost was driving for Williams. So um, Prost and Senna were at McLaren together. Yeah, and then Prost had to leave for a year. Well, no, Prost went to Ferrari. Yeah. And then he had to take a year off. And then he went to Williams and he won a championship and then he retired. Yeah. And then, so basically, Senna took Prost's spot at Williams. Mm -hmm. And that's where things kind of went wrong because he, there was this understanding that, like, Williams had, like, 
this more electronic technology that helped the car handle better on tight corners and things like that. Like they were talking about the ind independent suspension and uh, the power steering ability and... Um, they had a thing. It was like a traction control as well. Yeah, they had tr uh, traction control and active suspension, and I think this is something that's kind of hard for us to get behind in 2020. Yeah, because it's this it's, was, it's something this was, that's it, fundamentally yeah. in a lot of modern day automobiles to to an extent or in some different capacity. Well, yeah, like like safety your, features, your ABS brakes, your traction control, the fact that like when you turn the wheel, it isn't like cranking the friggin wheel 18 times to get a turn yeah like these were the top end fastest cars in the world and they didn't even have these things yeah and like these guys were using regular stick manual gear shifts yeah and clutches not paddle shifters <laughs> not power shifters not paddle shifters they had like they didn't have abs like there's so many things on these cars that weren't there Mm-hmm. And Williams was one of the teams that brought in a lot of these things, and because of that, they actually got kind of punished. There was a lot of things that were going around, and so he moved to Williams because of the safety features and the way that they were getting things to go at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. then Williams won too much, so they went, no, you can't have any of those things, and that's the year that he went there. But... Not not trying to focus too much on like the the the, the technical aspects. the technical aspects and the minutia aspects like it really goes into this person who at the time this movie was made which was ten years ago um, bless, yeah I know bless talk. you uh, when this movie was made ten years ago Senna had already been dead for twenty years yeah now it's thirty years and so much has happened since then in the world of F one but also. Because he was Brazilian, not a lot is known about him. Yeah. So, like, half this movie is in Portuguese. Yeah. Because that's the language that he spoke, and that's where they got a lot of the footage and the interviews and talking to family members and such, right? And it kind of gives you this look into, like, what's going through somebody's mind who's got the expectation and the hopes of a nation on his back. And his own desires, and and it goes into it a lot in this movie. His deep connection. He's he's a deeply religious man. Deeply. Yeah, and like, oh, even the, there's this one interview bit uh, uh, talking to his sister just before um, the uh, San Marino Grand Prix, which is the Grand Prix he passed away at. Yeah, that was that was tough. <laughs> yeah, his sister's like, Senna came to me and he was praying to God and like saying that like he was going to go to him. Like yeah, he, God or he, something he, like that. He, it's like he it's asked, almost like it, it was prophesized that he was gonna die that way. I think he, it's I like think she or she recounts him saying like God would be with him because mm -hmm. he was like I know that he would be with God. Yeah, exactly. And 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 for somebody that probably wasn't anticipating that, he's like finally like it could be something that was like helpful or or relieving, but it also goes to that opposite end where it was it could it was very much foreshadowing what was going to be happening later that that weekend yeah and it's it's also just really interesting because i think i think the way you and i have made documentaries before we've worked on documentaries together before exactly so we have a little bit of knowing about the nuts and bolts of what goes into it and when you're doing a found footage documentary like this you as the filmmaker uh and the director of this is uh asif kapadia mm -hmm. so he's the director well known for documentaries award-winning like 
very well-respected documentary filmmaker, mm-hmm. right? Um, for Senna, for Amy, for Maradona, for Ronaldo. Like, there's a lot of stuff that he's worked on Yeah, that is really well done. And he's crafting this entire story yeah from everything like what gets included and what doesn't get included is so much of an effort it is and when things get included and i think it's kind of interesting like you hear about him talking about how he he was he he felt like he was going to be with god before that one race but then you go back to the 80s and he's talking about he's doing this amazing amazing race at Monaco, he's like 50 seconds ahead, which this is this is Formula One racing. Like a one second lead is like, oh, I'm beat. 50 seconds is like miles, <laughs> right? Yeah. And he's 50 seconds ahead, and he's talking about like how he became like one with the car, one with God. He felt like not just in the zone, like he was above being in the zone. He was elevated. Yeah, and then he crashed. <laughs> And when you crash at Monaco, you crash and your car is destroyed, but you don't die because the corners are too tight and you can't, it's hard to really, really get up to the speeds that you're able to get up to at um, San Marino. Yeah. But when you're in that kind of zone and you're in San Marino and you go straight into the wall. Uh, Be gone. Yeah, but I think I want to talk more about the, the crafting of the story. Like yeah. what they chose to include, when, what they tell you about this man like he was a celebrity he was a sex symbol he was <laughs> dude got laid <laughs> yeah no he had he had that like new year's interview that was so funny and he was like i'm brazilian we kiss everybody on the cheek it's fun and he was like can you keep kissing me please it was just it was it was really cute he was like he was a really wholesome guy that really enjoyed the sport and i think yeah like i mean you're talking about the technical elements there was one thing that i particularly enjoyed and picked up on early on it's easier too when I think you have like a nice sound system or a headphone. Mm-hmm. Was it? It sounded like there was a lot of like artificial sound built into the atmosphere to kind of engage you. Yeah, they added so many. The sound work on this documentary is amazing because all that all that VHS and like TV recordings that they got, it'd be scratchy. Scratchy. Or... There isn't really any sound, but like they went in, they added the gear shifts, they added picking up of glasses, like all that stuff to camera read. shutters from like a paparazzi yeah. or, or crowd chants and things like that and it was it very you didn't notice it because it blended so well with the footage that was there but it was very atmospheric and it was like oh my gosh and then it, it only came to me because at one point in time i was sitting there and i, I just kind of zoned out and i was like he's almost like having an interview and i was like i can still hear crowd cheering it or shutters clicking i was like it doesn't really feel like there's that stuff there but i picked up on it and it made sense because it was like a very monumental uh, event or or thing that had happened um also if i had a nickel for every time there was a shot of him pouring champagne on his head i'd be a millionaire (laughs) um that's what happens when you win a lot of races but he did it the same way every time he was it was like it was almost like a signature thing for him he just like opened his mouth he's like i can't breathe i'm wearing a hat and you just see the champagne you just directly pour it over his head like it's like a shower and it was just like like an umbrella hat just all over him and i was like okay whatever and everybody else was throwing hats and he's like yeah (laughs) it's yeah and just also like the the things that you get to find out about a person when you take that much of a view on somebody mm-hmm. and yeah i don't know 
it, it's almost hard to like come up with words to describe the documentary. Right. It uh, just it just it really sucks you into what's going on. It does. It does. And you just feel like I don't want to say like you're there, but like you're kind of yeah. It yeah. just feels like it. I I was always waiting for some because again you hear the footage or sorry you hear the interviews of people happening kind of in real time when the documentary is being made. But I, part of me was wondering if they would ever actually cut back to the people nowadays to see what they would look like or see the emotion on their face. Because sometimes what they do as, as, mm-hmm. as a dramatic element is like when you talk about something that's very difficult or you talk about something that really had like an impact on somebody, they, they really want to capture the essence of it and what better way to do it than somebody's face. And just to hear the words rather than seeing anything, it was, it was different and it was i it was well done and i and i i think i preferred it for this but it definitely is it is like it's an experience like you can't i feel like my my knowledge of senna is like limited to this movie but like this movie does so much to really lay the groundwork or the basis of his story like there's there's nobody else talking about who they are yeah like i i barely know anything about prost aside from the fact that he's a methodical driver because he plays by points and that he i think he's french right yeah yeah he's french and he really didn't like senna very much and, yeah. and, 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 and that's and kind of what it he yeah. curly hair and yeah. <laughs> that's about it well in that whole prost prost v senna which is it's 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 very historic in formula one racing and they and they were teammates for a while too which is crazy well that's one of the things i think that uh people don't think about and one of the things that they don't explain very well in 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 Formula One about this thing, there's there's two championships up for grab every year. Mm-hmm. So you have a certain amount of teams, but the teams are just whoever makes the car. Mm-hmm. So you have McLaren, Ferrari, Mercedes. There used Williams. to be, yeah, Williams. Like you can either have a car manufacturer like Ferrari, or you could have a team like Williams. So Williams uh, was one guy mm-hmm. and his buds. They made cars, right? Um, you've had Renault in the past. You have McLaren. McLaren yeah. is also that. Now they make their own cars, but the F1 team started off just the F1 team. Yeah. Um, so you have the teams, and they're called constructors. So each constructor can field two cars, mm-hmm. and you have a constructor's championship, and you have a driver's championship. So the constructors want the two best drivers who get the best point results and you get a certain amount of points for whatever place the driver play ends up in yeah so if prost and senna come first and second in every race mclaren's doing sweep. great yeah right but uh the drivers themselves then are competing against each other even their teammates to try to win that driver's championship yeah and when you're in the exact same car and in the same garage with the same mechanics that's when some heated rivalries can happen. Exactly. Because yeah. it's there's there's nothing there's nothing separating you. You can't be like, oh well that car's better. Or they have the nicer mechanics or whatever. You're on right? the same playing field. You're on the same playing field and it's one v one driver v driver, and that's why that rivalry got so heated. But also you had the rivalry of like French. He spoke the language. He was friends with the head of the FIA, which is the governing body making the rules for Formula One. 
and all that sort of yeah. stuff. And those guys were French too, and like, and then you have this outsider from Brazil who's really religious and doesn't care about winning. He just wants to drive. Yeah. <laughs> and I think it captures that kind of mentality and environment, and uh, it's it's interesting. So Asif uh, Kapadia has made this trilogy, which is Senna, Amy, and Maradona. Maradona. Yeah. And he's called it the Child Geniuses Trilogy. Really? Yeah, because it's about these people who are are kind of just pure genius that burns out. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like Amy was pure musical genius that burnt out. Senna was kind of pure racing sporting genius that unfortunately burnt out. Uh, and Maradona isn't dead, which is great, good. But... He was a sporting soccer genius who kind of burnt out a bit as well. Like, he had really bad drug problems and a bunch of other stuff. Like, um, But he won, like, World Cups and was, like, best player in the world and that sort of stuff. And I think this movie does... So- and have you, actually, have you seen Amy? No, I haven't. No. Okay. If you've watched Amy, this film has all of the same hallmarks about getting you to understand and be in the mind of somebody who does just have that like innate ability and innate sense of needing to do a thing mm-hmm. like i don't think and you can kind of almost get into this thing of like like oh they were born to do this yeah right like they were born to be a driver or a musician or a soccer player or something like that they just had this innate genius and i think those characters are super interesting to see and unfortunately for people like Amy Winehouse and Ayrton Senna, they can't tell that story themselves anymore. So I think Asif Kapadia uh, has done a really good job in telling that story in the best way that cinema can. That's my, that's my wrap-up. <laughs> that's, that's my two cents. That's, that's my wrap-up. Um, it was also, really, really well done, though. Oh, superbly well done, I think. Like, if you, if you are a fan of documentaries, which I am... It's a very refreshing, like, take on things. Yeah, and I love the fact that, like, it's very uncommon to see, like, a pure 100% found footage documentary done this well. Yes. With yeah. this much, like, they did so much work finding interviews and footage and anything at all. Yeah. Like, anything at all. And, and, it, and it's very cohesive. Extreme, and it has yeah. like a great continuity to it too. You would see him like walking up the stairs behind the scenes from like a behind the scenes like beta cam or something like that, and then he would show up in front of the audience on like the the live TV, the live or, TV something. or something like that. It's just superbly well done. Yeah, I, I've gushed. Uh, if we're gonna, <laughs> if we're burn gonna, out. <laughs> if we're gonna go into like ratings or whatever, I think I've got to give this like an eight or a nine or something like that. It's a very high end rated film for me. I, I am a bit biased. I am an F1 fan. Some of the footage that they got was just unreal. Like, like when you came over and you were talking about like the... So they have a onboard cameras on the cars. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah, like... Or just, just like... They do... Oh, there was one cut that I loved where it's kind of like, oh yeah, he was finding his footing. And then he found his footing and it cuts... It hard cuts to this like long shot of Senna like doing like S's in his Lotus... And it's just like, Jesus, that's fast. <laughs> or or when, when he's sitting there in the cockpit and they're like, 
Oh, by the way, his gearbox broke. He's stuck in sixth. And I went, <laughs> he finished nine laps of a race in sixth gear. And he could, and I was like, and it's in his homeland. And that was his first time he ever won in Brazil. And he comes out and they're peeling his hands off the steering wheel. And I went, oh my gosh. Well, yeah. So like, like, I think one thing that's kind of funny and like people talk about this with any kind of racing, like whether it's NASCAR or IndyCar or rally car or anything, maybe not rally car. People think rally car is pretty badass. But like NASCAR, cool. <laughs> like NASCAR, they're just kind of like, oh, you sit there and you turn a wheel, and it's like, nah, you're turning a wheel in like a thing that's not designed to be comfortable at all. No. Um, Master racing, that's so difficult. Getting stuck in a gear like that, that's wild. Because if you stop, you're done. That's yeah. It. Your car's, yeah. you're literally, you literally can't start the car. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you. I. Uh, I don't know if I would go like to like a, a mid nine or anything like that. I think I think like a, a high eight was pretty fair. Mm-hmm. I think it's like exceptionally well done. Yeah, like highly recommendable. Um, Very recommended because it's just, it. I think I just want a little bit more out of it. Yeah, same. That, that's about it. That's my biggest thing was like there was in I th- not to like harp on it. They, I I liked how they handled the ending with the funeral, but it also part of it felt kind of hollywood kind of cheesy not cheesy but like kind of hollywoodish like they they would connect characters back and forth and I was yeah like, i it saw felt... them all, all, all along like yeah. i know that they're broken and i i don't i don't really yeah. need that extra i also felt like the ending was kind of rushed yes totally totally yeah like i was like he passes away but we're like an hour and a half into the movie there's 10 minutes left leading into the event was kind of it was again well done with all the foreshadowing and how all the bad things kept happening but i think yeah the event itself was just so and it it could have been how it was just they wanted to handle it and how it happened in real life it was very instantaneous because they have the footage of him again the body cam and then the live footage it's interesting that they cut it yeah they cut it they cut away because they they do the onboard camera like up until he leaves the track and then they cut to the wide camera yeah i don't know if the feed would have cut no it doesn't no i've seen the footage oh really it's on if, if you look up like senna crash they on have. you pretty much have up until first contact of the wall and then the camera cuts out yeah I wonder like you he... can see up until that impact which is just because they could have kept it's going insane. even yeah, they that, and then they could have just even cut back to the wide again just moments before he heads into it because that's what they do in most action movies is they replay it, things yeah but it felt like they were trying to be sensitive about it and i'm also oh, kind of like but it would hit so much more if you if we were and i knew when it was coming yeah because i knew when he passed away and any f1 fan would yeah um but i almost feel like they telegraphed it too much <laughs> yeah, just a little bit like i feel like you could have made it really shocking because it was extremely shocking to everybody else when it happened whereas this was like he didn't want to do it he was there they put the blanket over the car there was like there was a lot of foreshadowing in advance there was a lot don't of come into his trailer don't talk to him yeah he is un- uncomfortable and things like that so and it's also it's interesting though because they and they bring it up a little bit in the film how it's almost it was such a shock reason why he passed away mm. so so the crash happens and the crash is bad very bad right but bad crashes happen i think i've shown you some on well, there was bad crashes that happened there but they and again, the guys walked, walked out. out yeah yeah like it's specifically like 
the suspension or raw or supporting rod or whatever that he crashed into because he crashed in on like sort of an angle yeah the front the wheel yeah. hit first uh, a collapse first and then like one of the rods went through the cockpit and hit him in the head yeah and just the force of that instantly killed him yeah not instantly killed him but like it killed him if that had gone slightly one way or slightly the other way or whatever he'd be alive he would have been fine yeah right he and they bring it up like no broken bones no bruises no nothing it was just that one rod hit his helmet and the force killed him yeah and it's it's almost as if god was like i want you sorry i want my child yeah and that's what like was kind of the lead up to it as they allude to in the in the documentary and it's just kind of it's wild man it's wild again powerful story but yeah um so what you thinking about next week, dude? Want to watch Rush? <laughs> I haven't seen Rush. Oh, you haven't? I haven't seen. Rush. Oh, I saw it in theaters. <laughs> it's Nicky Lauda, right? Yeah. If we're gonna talk, if we're gonna talk about uh, other um, F one movies, Rush, twenty thirteen, Ron Howard. You Ron got Howard, uh, Chris uh, Hemsworth. Chris Hemsworth playing um, James Hunt, and oh, who's the other guy? Who plays Lauda? Uh, I can picture his face. Yeah. He's in um, Br- Brule, Brule, something Brule. I'm looking it up. B-R-U-H-L. Uh, oh, fuck. I googled Rush and it gave me the band. Um, yeah, Daniel Brule. Yeah. Yeah, he was in... Um, the Avengers. Or, sorry, Captain America. Uh, was he? Uh, I think he was in Civil War. Maybe his his uh, IMDb says he's known for Goodbye Lenin. He plays Frederick Zoller in Inglorious Bastards. Oh yes, he was in Civil War. Yeah, he was a bad guy. He worked for Hydra. Yeah, he's also uh, he's the main guy in the series The Alienist. He was in The Zookeeper's Wife. I think he was in The Cloverfield Paradox. Yes. Yep. Fifth Estate. He's a, he's a pretty well-known actor. Not Chris Hemsworth level. But Rush, uh, directed by uh, Ron, Howard. Ron Howard. Very good racing movie. That is purely about the racing, though. Yeah. And that's another big rivalry one. Like, uh, before you had Prost v. Senna, you had Hunt v. Uh, Lauda. And that was... Uh, it kind of covers the story. They have some great racing shots. Um, really, really great racing shots done there. And, and some of the things that they had to overcome in the characters that were Hunt and Lauda. And actually, it's kind of interesting because Nikki Lauda's in this uh, Senate documentary. At the beginning, right? Yeah, at the beginning because he was still racing at the time and yeah. I think he might have a few interviews throughout. Yeah. Um, Nikki Lauda is a racing... Well-accomplished. I think he did three world championships or maybe two. Uh, he won for Ferrari, though, which is important because if you win for Ferrari... You're pretty good. Yeah. People like you. Uh, and then also, uh, he's also just been in racing for a, a really long time. He passed away last year, actually, unfortunately. Oh, that sucks. Yeah, but, he, but he was probably a little bit older at that point. Oh, he was older. But he's he was one of the key members of the modern Mercedes team, mm-hmm. which won six drivers and constructors world championships in a row. The only team ever to do so. Mm. Uh 
But he he had a, a big accent, which they cover in that movie and all that. Um, yeah, I've seen stuff in the trailer, so I know. I think there's like yeah, there's a preface that there's like an accident, and that also kind of helps fuel the rivalry yeah. or something like that. All right, I think we've probably been talking long enough. Oh shit, we don't have a movie for next week. What did you want to watch? Oh fuck, I think I suggested something to you, but I can't remember. Ooh, I have one. Want to watch Made? Or have you seen it? watched american made but i don't know what made. made 2001 american crime comedy direct directorial oh, told, debut yeah, of john, john favreau, favreau yes has vince vaughn i know you told me to watch another vince vaughn and john favreau movie swingers called swingers and it was fucking boring as hell and i gave up you on didn't it. like swingers the first like 20 minutes of it are it's just them awkwardly being in a casino and i hated it did you did you not get to his phone call which one the one where he keeps calling your back. No. Oh, okay. Well, you missed the best part. <laughs> no, I got to, like, then they, like, meet these waitresses and they go to, like, a trailer and they're, like, the Vince Vaughn's banging and the other John Favreau's just like, I miss my girlfriend. And I was just like, this is boring. I'm giving up on this. I love swingers. I love Ron Livingston's in that movie, too. Yeah, he is. It's, it's, like, it's like an awkward buddy movie because they it's all... It's too awkward is the problem. <laughs> it's kind of the point. It's so funny. It's so funny that way. I love it. Do you want to... I'm so, down So, do you want to watch Made? Yeah. Because the reason why I wanted to watch Made was because the DP is Christopher Doyle. Who's Christopher Doyle? <laughs> the cinematographer for... In the mood for love. Oh, cool. Super cool. Let's wrap this bad boy up. Let's wrap this up. It stopped raining. Um, yeah. Cool. Thanks for listening to the Popcorn Pillow Talk podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Um, and uh, follow us on Instagram because we make our Instagram posts about what movies we're going to be watching and talking about and all that sort of stuff. And we really want some great community involvement. Start the conversation. <laughs> no. Uh, we are Popcorn Pillow Talk on Instagram. We are. And, uh, We're yeah. Gonna get a Twitter going eventually. Yes. I started it. I haven't really done anything with it. Anticipate me not doing anything with it for quite some time. <laughs> I just want to get some drawings and stuff up on it. That's all. Um, like, just our, like, logos and whatnot are still coming. It's still still being worked on. Yep. Anyway, thanks, guys. Thanks. Bye. <laughs>